Welcome to In Search Of. We're your hosts, Ashton and Sam. We're two accountants who binge podcasts by day and TV by night. Keep listening to find what you've been in search of. Hi, Sam. Hey, Ashton. What's up? Not much. <laughs> not, <It's> not much. <laughs> a long weekend. I'm enjoying not doing much of anything. Yeah, I haven't really done anything at all. I'm trying to even think what I've done. It's Memorial Day weekend. So Sam and I didn't have any plans. Honestly, I think I've been working on like podcast notes, which mm-hmm. I'm perfectly fine with that. So Watching Gilmore Girls. Yes, watching Gilmore Girls. I was trying to think if I've watched anything else. We watched a movie the other day, Big Eyes. Have you ever heard of that? No. It has Amy Adams in it. It was okay. I'm not like, you know, crazy about movies. Oh, I do know. I do know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was okay. Mm -hmm. It was good. Um, Yeah, other than that, I've just been... Oh, Stranger Things came. Have you seen Stranger Things? Yeah, but I think the third season, maybe, I kind of fell off because it was getting so Mm -hmm. weird. And Mm -hmm. I was like, I just... It wasn't holding my attention anymore. I started the fourth episode... I mean, fourth season, first episode, but haven't finished it. I I was struggling to get into it. My mom said that it gets good, like, Mm -hmm. if you keep going. So I might give that another try. But yeah, I've just been on a Gilmore Girls... um, streak lately so anyways today we have i guess family murder so we each have a case where a family was murdered and there was a survivor so we'll be talking about two different um cases today uh i guess i i can't remember who went first last time but i can go first so my case is on the um, Stay family murders, and this um, happened back in July of 2014. So on July 9th in Spring, Texas, which is like a suburb suburb of Houston, six members of the Stay family were murdered in their home, leaving one survivor who would stop the killer before he could harm anyone else. The victims were 39-year-old Stephen Robert Stay, his wife, 33-year-old Katie Stay, and four of their children, Brian, Emily, Rebecca, and Zachary. They were 13, 9, 7, and 4. The survivor was their oldest child, Cassidy Stay, who was 15 at the time. So What led to six members being shot execution style in their home in July of 2014? Um, To kind of explain this, I go back to 2002, and that is when Ronald Lee Haskell and Melanie K. Lyon, Lyon, I believe is how you pronounce her name, got married in March of 2002 in Orange County, California. They had four children together. They moved to Logan, Utah, and remained there from July 2006 to November 2013. From the outside looking in, everything appeared normal. Ron was very likable in high school. He had a very normal upbringing. He was voted class clown, homecoming king. He played football, but those closest to him saw a different side. 
Ron was abusive towards Melanie and she finally reported the, the abuse to the police for the first time in June of 2008. Mel Melanie claimed Ron dragged her out of their bed by her hair and struck her several times in the head. Charges were dismiss dismissed and um, a plea, plea deal was reached. Ron was required to avoid any additional criminal charges for a period of time. However, the abuse eventually started back up again, and um, Melanie hoped the abuse would eventually stop. However, it never did, which I feel like you see a lot of times is they'll stick it out. I mean, people are always like, why did they stay so long? But it's, you know, there's a lot of layers to it. And one of those layers is they think it's going to stop. So the final straw for Melanie was after she saw one of her children mimicking like her husband's violent behavior and they split in November of 2013. Um, the divorce decree had a restraining order against Ron and he was required to a psychological evaluation and to demonstrate that he was emotionally and mentally stable enough for unsupervised visits with his children um, Melanie got primary custody of the children and the divorce became final on Valentine's day, 2014. So when they split, Melanie's sister came to Utah to help Melanie and the children move to Houston. And that is where Melanie's family lived, her parents and siblings. And her sister was Katie stay. So Melanie and the children would be staying with the stay family when they first arrived. Um, after the divorce, Ron moved in with his family in Southern California, and then five short, five short months later, things got much worse for Melanie and her family. Um, a week prior to the shootings, Ron, um, Ron's mother had called the police stating that she wanted a restraining order against her son. They had had a terrible argument after he learned his mom had been in communication with Melanie. Ron's mom stated he forced her into the garage, duct taped her, duct taped her wrist, tied her to a chair for nearly four hours. He threatened to kill her and his entire family. The police searched for Ron after the incident, but they could not locate him. On July 9th, Ron went to, Ron went to the Stay family home dressed as a FedEx delivery driver. He was searching for his ex-wife. Um, Cassidy answered the door. She did not recognize him at first and Ron asked for her parents and she said they were not home. So Ron left, came back a few hours later and Cassie ans Cassidy answered again and he told her he was her ex-uncle and she tried to close the door on him, but he forced his way in anyways. He tied Cassidy up and had her lay face down. When Cassidy's parents and siblings arrived home, he did the same thing to them. So they got back to the house not long after he um, forced his way in. He was asking them uh, where Melanie was, and they told him they didn't know. And then he shot them execution style all on the back of the head. Um, five of them died at the scene. One of the children was taken to the hospital and died shortly after arriving, and Cassidy survived the vicious attack by playing dead. She had raised her hand. And this deflected the bullet and the bullet grazed her head and she only suffered a skull fracture and an amputated finger. Once Ron left, Cassidy called 911 telling police that Ron was planning to go after her grandparents and aunt. 
The police caught up with him and police chased him for 20 minutes. They were, there were about 12,000, 12,000, 12 dozen, not 12,000 police cars. <laughs> I always do that. that I just would add, be a lot. I just Some extra add, zeros. I know. I always just say a thousand. It doesn't matter if it's dozens or whatever. <laughs> My brain always goes to thousands. Um, the police had disabled his car with a spike strip and cornered him in a cul-de-sac located three miles from the stay home. They blocked him in with two armed vehicle vehicles. Uh, they, he held a pistol to his head and spoke to police over his cell phone. And about three hours after the standoff, Ron finally surrendered. And the following day, he was charged with six counts of capital murder in September of 2014, he was found guilty and sentenced to death by lethal injection. Um, he's currently on death row awaiting execution. And I saw that the county, Texas County, where he was um, sentenced to death, they've sentenced more people to death in that county than anywhere else, I think, in the United States. So, yeah, he, I don't think, had a good chance of, you know, avoiding that. Um and this was really sad because Melanie later stated that she paid the ultimate price for he- for freedom. So, yeah, he's currently waiting um, as execution. And my um, s- sources were Wikipedia and Murderopedia, I think is how you say it. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's short. There's not a ton of information. I mean, it's kind of straight to the point, you know, like there wasn't much mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, Cassidy, you know, obviously was uh, looked at as a hero for being able to lay there next to her dead parents and siblings. And yeah, that's call 911 and get help. Um, and yeah, so it was just, it's a horrible, horrible thing. And I mean, he, like clearly he had issues because he abused his wife um Mm -hmm. but like you know people from high school were like this was the last thing we ever expected and they just a lot of people were like what what made him switch to go and be like okay I'm depressed and unhappy and I'm mad that my wife and I are divorcing but like you know what makes you switch to say I'm gonna kill Right. How do you Six go from family members mad to murder? And I thought like, okay, maybe because Katie, um, Melanie's sister, like helped her move across, mm-hmm. you know, like she was mm-hmm. the one who convinced mm-hmm. her to move and leave. Yeah. So maybe he like blamed her. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like he's got to be like bipolar or something, you know, like there's got to oh, be. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. To like, snap like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah it's very sad but yeah it's almost like not that I don't know it's like the because you know the older the survivor is the more they remember because like in my story she was only three when it happened so she doesn't really remember anything and also she had like brain injuries which is Mm. another reason why she doesn't really remember anything but like at 15 you obviously remember all of it yeah yeah so it was, I mean, that's horrible. It's a yeah. horror. And I mean, Mel, poor Melanie, like her comment where she said, I paid the ultimate price for freedom. It was yeah. just, you know, so, so sad. Um, so 
yeah that is the stay family I mean yeah I don't know it was just it was crazy reading about it um because at first I thought he killed his ex-wife yeah that not that that makes sense but that's what I would expect yeah and then when I started reading I'm like no it was his ex-wife's like family members which Mm -hmm. are just like geez and now a word from our sponsors okay so my story is the story of the colorado hammer killer um who was linked to the bennett family murders and he really got caught um from the bennett family murders but it was like the last part of like a string of murders he committed so it's obviously in Colorado and the Bennett family was killed in 1984. So on January 16th of 1984, the Bennett family um, had just had a birthday party for one of their daughters named Melissa. She was turning eight years old. Um, they had one other daughter named Vanessa, who was three at the time. And the parents were 27-year-old Bruce and 26-year-old Deborah. So they had their the grandparents over, so like Vanessa and Melissa's grandparents over for um, like a small party for Melissa. And um, they left their Aurora, Colorado home around 9 p.m. Um, their grandmother was named Connie Bennett, and she noticed when she left that their garage door was open but didn't really think anything about it. So they drove away. Um, And then the next day, Bruce and Deborah had like a furniture store, like a family owned furniture store and they didn't show up to work. And so the, their coworkers called Connie um, and asked where they were, if she knew, and she obviously didn't. So she went back to their house to check on them um, realized that the garage door was still open from the night before and then, you know, started to worry. So she went inside the home and first found Bruce's body. It was like crumpled kind of at the bottom of their staircase, like right through the front door. Um, and then she found, um, Deborah and Melissa's body in their own bedrooms. Um, obviously, she could tell that they had all um, been killed. So um, the detective that came onto the scene was detective Marv Brandt. And um, he could tell that Bruce had tried to fight off the attacker, but he had been bludgeoned with what looked like a hammer and his throat had been slit. And then he found Deborah um, and both of the girls had, head injuries. Um, Vanessa was still alive, but only barely. She had been rushed to the hospital and she had multiple surgeries. Like she was in a coma for weeks. She had like paralysis on one side of her body. Um, Her skull had been like broken in and she has like right to this day, a metal like plate in her head. Um, um, the autopsy on Melissa, uh, found that she had been sexually assaulted. Um, and back at the scene, the detective found the knife that was used to slit Bruce's throat in their driveway. And the rest of the family's wounds looked like they had been inflicted by a claw hammer, which had never been found. 
So um, Detective Brandt realized that this scene was familiar to one that he had been called upon a couple days earlier. So the week before, on January 9th, he was called to the home of 20-year-old flight attendant Donna Dixon. Her boyfriend was an airline pilot. His name was Ron Holm. And he came home that night and found the garage in like disarray. Her purse and their mail was scattered all over the driver's side of her car and all the money had been taken from her wallet. Um, in the car was also all of her clothes and there were blood stains on the concrete floor. The, um, the car's interior was covered in blood and a bloody hammer was laying on the driver's seat. And he noticed a trail of blood leading through the front door and found um, Dixon lying in her bed. Her head had been crushed in and she was barely alive. So they were able to save Dixon at the hospital, but she had massive brain damage. She was in the hospital for two weeks and had to relearn how to do basic things like eating and talking. Um, and I mean, this says what I'm reading says, unfortunately, she had no memory of the attack, the attack. I mean, to me, I almost think it's fortunate that you don't remember the attack. I mean, I guess in terms of trying to catch the person who did it, you'd want the victim to be able to remember, but I don't know if it were me, I would not want to have memories of that. Yeah. So now that makes sense. So now there are two crimes that are similar to Brant. Okay. So now there's a third one. Um, just days before that on January 4th, Kim and Jim Hoban's child, also Aurora residents had awakened to a man beating them with a hammer. He took Kim's purse and fled, leaving Jim with a skull fracture and Kim with a concussion. So they, they were fine. Um, but both the Hoban's child and Dixon attacks weren't really publicized. They weren't really put in the news. So people didn't really realize to connect them, but, um, the Bennett murders because it was like a whole family that was finally put into the news. Um, and people started talking about him and how they could be connected. So, um, other reporters began hearing of this case and they connected a fourth crime, um, on January 10th in Lakewood, Colorado, the day after Dixon was found bleeding in her bed, 50-year-old Patricia Smith was found dead just inside the front door of her home. She had been beaten with an auto body hammer and sexually assaulted. Her purse had also been dumped out and money was stolen. So um, they finally decided that they would try to put um, together like a profile of the criminal. Um, they predicted that the man was like in his 20s, had a record of theft or burglary, and possibly had a drug or alcohol addiction. Um, they thought he would maybe be a construction worker since the attacks all happened in areas with a lot of construction um, activity. And so with the... With that and the like weapons that he tended to use, it became he became known as the hammer killer. So now we're gonna get to the hammer killer getting caught. In January 20 or on January 27th of 1984. So this is all happening like within the same month. Um, 
Um, outside of Kingman, Arizona, Roy Williams was awakened by an intense pain in his head. He woke to see a man standing over him with a large rock. Um, he said he tried to stay calm and asked the man who was hitting him with the rock, why are you doing this? Um, he said that it, it seemed to take the man off of guard. He said he wanted to like get him talking and to calm him down. The guy eventually fled into the night. But Williams called the police, um, but since it had been dark out, he couldn't really describe his attacker, but police were able to find shoe prints um, in the ground outside of his home. So several hours later, a patrol officer noticed a man hitchhiking near a large truck stop about a quarter mile away from Williams's house. And um, the officer asked the man if he could have a look at his shoes and the tread appeared to match the footprints at Williams's home. So the officer asked the man if he would come to the station and the man fled. Um, but police found him about 30 minutes later hiding behind a bush. Um, so William survived his attack, although he had broken ribs and it took nearly 100 stitches to close the gash on his head. So the attacker was a 20-something former construction worker with a long history of theft and burglary charges and matched the exact description that they thought was the hammer killer. So his name was Christopher or Alex Christopher Ewing. Um, so he was eventually booked and sent to um, a jail in, I think in Nevada. Yes. Mm, no, Arizona. And um, wait, okay. I'm getting confused because he was booked and then they tried to transfer him to a different jail. He was booked in Nevada and he was going to be transferred to Arizona. That's it. Okay. So he and several other inmates were taken on a five hour trip in two vans. Each had one guard. None of the inmates were shackled or restrained in any way. And underneath his prison uniform, Ewan, Ewing was wearing a pair of red shorts and black tennis shoes because he was planning to escape on this trip. So the caravan stopped at a gas station in Nevada to fill up on gas and let the prisoners use the bathroom. Um, Ewing was in the second group of prisoners escorted to the bathrooms. Um, and he the, the guard that was supposed to be watching him was distracted by signing a gas receipt and he slipped away. And it was only after all the inmates were loaded up and getting ready to leave that another inmate asked where he was. So... Um, they the officers went searching the area but couldn't find him he had already gotten away around 10 p.m two calls came into the henderson police um they reported seeing a suspicious man in red shorts and no shirt who matched the description of ewing lurking around their homes then an hour later a 911 call came in um 24 year old nancy berry called in a panic she said she had seen a man standing at her back door holding an axe handle she ran upstairs, but he followed her and began hitting her and her husband, Chris, with, with the axe handle, and she said she played dead to get him to stop. So police came and found the berries in serious condition. They were covered in bruises and blood. Um, the broken, bloody axe handle was left on the table. Um, both of Nancy's hands were broken from trying to defend herself, and Chris had severe injuries to his head and suffered permanent damage, but the couple's two children were unharmed. 
So um, for three days, there was no sign of Ewing, but then a telephone operator called the police with information. He said a man had made a collect call from a payphone near Lake Mead, and the operator heard the man tell his relative that he had escaped. So she put it all together um, and realized who he was. So um, National Park Rangers um, were able to chase Ewing down in the area. Um, and so he was charged, Ewing was charged with two counts of attempted murder for the most recent attack, um, also for escape and burglary. And he was sentenced to 110 years. So this is all going on, not realizing he was the man who slayed the Bennett family. Um, so this was like, you know, 1984 when DNA was first being, um, utilized i guess um and so it took um it took until let's see 2000 and 2016 so i don't know it was almost 20 wow. years yeah that was a while 30 years um yeah almost 30 years um dna finally connected Alex Ewing to the Bennett family murders and to um, Dixon's murder. So um, he was he was already sentenced to 110 years in jail, and then he got um, convicted of three for three more life sentences. Um, so he was, I mean, he was. It was like a only a month worth of killings, but I mean, he was. He did a lot of damage. Yeah, he did a lot. And not a lot of time. So yeah. um, Vanessa Bennett, like I said, she was only three years old when this happened. And she doesn't remember – she doesn't remember anything. And um, I listened to an interview with her and read a little bit. And she said, I'm sure my parents and sister were great people, but it's unfortunate I don't remember anything about them. I didn't just lose my parents and sister. I lost my trust in people. I lost my digni dignity and pride. I lost the person I was supposed to be. Some people may call him an animal, him being Ewing, but I won't because I think animals have a purpose in this world. Um, she was raised by her grandmother, and she said that in school she was bullied a lot for not having a family. Um, she That's had so to, sad. yeah, she like had to learn how to walk again. She had to learn how to do everything over again. She said she has a lot of survivor's guilt. Like she asked herself, yeah. why did I live? Um, because she ended up having struggling a lot with addiction. She mm -hmm. said, why did I live? I turned out to be a junkie. They were good people. They should have oh, lived. So, so she like blames herself for all of that. Yeah. Um, she had a period of homelessness. Um, in 2016, I think. Um, and she said when Ewing was charged, she said that she was glad, but that it wouldn't material change materially change her life. Mm -hmm. Like her life has already been really ruined. Um, yeah. and I think she, I think she's now working and she has, um, a place to live, but it's, I don't know. I think it, it was like a little bit of a different perspective that I heard from her because yeah. I feel like a lot of um, survivors that we hear about are um, trying to kind of defy the, the odds or the stereotypes or whatever. Um, and, and she's just very like, she's like, I don't, I mean, 
my life. She's like, this sucks. Like, it's not great. Like, it's nothing good happened, you know? Yeah, she's like, I don't have, like, a silver lining. Like, I don't don't have a way to turn this around and make this a great story. Like, it Mm -hmm. was awful, and it it has – ruined her life because from three years old she was already on this path of like such struggle and hardship so she's that guy I mean that's like the stuff you you see in a scary movie or like in your nightmares like yeah someone standing over you with a hammer or a rock or yeah or out your back door with an axe oh my god no thank you like I would and like a, a prisoner like an inmate escapes like how do you not keep track of inmates yeah going to the serial killer who yeah yeah. i know it's it's wild and i I mean that was not that long ago like the mid 80s was not so geez i feel horrible for but i know yeah because i mean like i guess with cassidy there hasn't been a ton of information as to what like she's been up to i guess because that was more recent um yeah but you know she from pictures and stuff it's like she put on this brave face and she faced her uncle ex-uncle in court and um yeah I don't know it just it just shows you that like sometimes it's just a shitty situation and then yeah and like like, just you really can't serve justice because nothing's gonna bring your family Mm -mm. back nothing's gonna give you a chance to like start over your life no there's no closure Um, and that's it's like I do understand like not wanting to remember the mm-hmm. the horrible incident, but then it's sad that she like didn't get to remember her family. Her family, either. yeah, they're strangers to her. It's ho- so sad. Mm-hmm. So so sad. Um, yeah, because you think like I don't know, like Cassidy was fifteen. You know, she had this life with like she has like, good is memories. It, yeah, like her. is it harder to have those memories or is it harder to not? And it seems mm-hmm. like, yeah, I mean, I know we're just looking at one, like two cases here, but um, I mean, you don't want either, obviously, right, right. but um, yeah, that's really sad. Jeez. Okay. Well, I don't really know how to, I know how to close <laughs> it out. <laughs> like, sorry guys, everyone go hug your, your yeah. family. Yeah. I know my mom always used to say like jokingly, she'd be like, life's a bitch. And then you die. Like, I feel like my mom feel says like- that too. That's very much my parents attitude. Yeah. Like, well, that sucks. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm like, I feel like that's how we're leaving this episode. Like, sorry guys. <laughs> life sucks like it's not <laughs> nice to people sometimes yeah. um mm-hmm. but anyways well i hope everyone has a nice and safe memorial day weekend <laughs> go with family some burgers yeah go spend some time with your family and um you know don't take them for granted and enjoy your your long weekend so um yeah i think i think I, we're just gonna end there so all right bye sam Thanks for listening to In Search Of. Don't forget to review, subscribe, and follow our podcast to stay up to date on the latest episodes. If you want more information on In Search Of, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. 